KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you for the next few hours here on KFI. I hope you're having a wonderful Mother's Day. I was having a conversation with somebody today about, I swear, I'm on a campaign to create a new holiday called Allo Parents Day. Maybe even get rid of Mother's Day and Father's Day and call it Parents Day. I don't know. I just think the whole thing about assuming that one woman has full responsibility, not her culture at large or the father, uh, and is congratulated for being a mother seems um, like we're leaving out a lot of other people that helped. Now, truthfully, anybody who is a mother knows how much darn work it is. I have been a single mother for 13 years, and my daughters, who are now 19 and 14, uh, did get up. Well, the oldest one got up and made me breakfast this morning. The younger one slept in. She's a sleeping teenager. And then the three of us went out for a beach walk, and it was just a nice time to just hang out together in the morning. And I loved it, but I, I also made a point of thinking about the other men and women in my life who have helped me because I didn't do this alone. In fact, one of my favorite books is called Mothers and Others. It's written by an anthropologist named Sarah Blaffer-Hardy. And she talks about how the rise in our intelligence as a homo sapien is largely related to the fact that we had multiple attachment figures. We had these other non-biologically related adults in our lives, sometimes slightly biologically related, aunts and uncles, who helped us because... Look, one woman in our hunter-gatherer past left alone in the forest with a baby surely would have died, surely would have perished. Um, Violent death was imminent all the way around. And I think about the 13 years in our modern culture that I've been a single mom, and there's no way I could have done it alone. First of all, let's just talk about the village of parents that you get at every school from the preschool on up. Then there are the close friends, and 20% of women do not become biological mothers. 20%, one in five. But that doesn't mean they're not mothers. That doesn't mean they're not nurturing the culture. That doesn't mean that they're not helping some young person or taking care of the elderly, nurturing in any way. And in my case, you know, I have many friends who were there for me. Um, If I was sick or something happened, there was somebody I could call to drive my kids There was uh, somebody who made Christmas a little bit better sometimes when there were lean years. And I am deeply grateful and indebted to all those Allo parents. A-L-L-O, parents. Allo, beside, parents, right? Um, Interestingly, my daughter just got back from her semester abroad where she was studying in Stockholm, Sweden. And, you know, they they have such better gender neutral laws or whatever, gender parity in their culture and men have to actually take some parental leave. They legislate, they legislate fatherhood. So you'll see a wide range of masculinity on display in Sweden, including many, many young men wearing babies, walking with toddlers, at the park, hanging out with groups of dudes and babies. They created a whole subculture of dads. And my daughter said to me that one American guy said to her recently, Oh, Sweden. I remember visiting there. Isn't that the place where they have all the gay nannies? (laughs) She's like, no, they're called fathers and they're actually involved. They're not gay nannies. (laughs) Um, Interesting little tidbit 
about Mother's Day. I always think of it as one of those Hallmark holidays, meaning that it's been pretty much commercialized. I mean, it's about selling flowers and chocolate and booking brunches at nice restaurants, right? So I'm always wondering about the history of holidays, and I look it up. And here is the woman who invented Mother's Day. Apparently, her name is Anna Jarvis. Her mom had been a Sunday school teacher. She was very, very, very close to her mom. And one day when her mom was finishing a school lesson at Sunday school, she read a prayer to commemorate mothers and talked about the matchless service mothers render to humanity. Well, her daughter, Anna, was just 12 at that time, and she remembered that prayer for the rest of her life. I'm going to analyze this story in just a second. First, I'll tell you the story, and then I'll tell you what I think went down. Uh, So two years after her mother's death, it was 1907, It was, where were we? Virginia, I believe. Anna Jarvis Jarvis began to lobby for the national holiday in her mother's honor. She wrote thousands of letters to people like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, William Jennings Byrons, Mark Twain. And then in 1908, the Senate rejected, rejected her Mother's Day resolution. But she was not deterred. She started reaching out to governors of states, beginning in West Virginia. And her idea eventually caught on amongst the states. And after a few years, the majority of states in the United States held Mother's Day celebrations. Um, So she asked people to observe the day by visiting or at least writing to their mothers and wearing a white carnation. Her quote was, live this day as your mother would have you live it. So finally, the tide turned after she lobbied so many governors and got so many states on the bandwagon. And the U.S. government officially designated Mother's Day as a national holiday back in 1914. But then things turned a little sour. Well, this is America. We are a capitalist culture. Anything we can connect with a product, way to go, right? So um, she became started to become territorial over her holiday, Anna Jarvis did, She copyrighted her own photograph, she trademarked her Mother's Day seal, and she incorporated herself as the Mother's Day International Association. She became so consumed with this cause, she quit her job, and she fought tooth and nail against greeting card industries, um, against flower people. Um, She even, um, if you can believe it, fought a charity Uh, the Golden Rule Foundation. It was a fund for needy mothers and children. And she accused them of commercializing Mother's Day to line their pockets. She rallied against the U.S. Postal Service when they issued a commemorative Mother's Day stamp. Uh, At her peak, Anna Jarvis, the creator of Mother's Day, had 33 lawsuits pending. The sad story is she lived as a recluse for the last decade of her life. She was eventually committed to a sanitarium. She died alone and penniless. And perhaps saddest of all, Anna Jarvis, the inventor of Mother's Day, never became a mother herself. Okay, now let me analyze. So, here she was not becoming a mother, but fighting for everybody to remember her mother. I see anxious attachment style right there. I think the grieving and loss over the loss of her mother was obviously what stimulated her to get this going, but the underbelly of this was trying to keep her mother close. And then when people felt that they were, or she felt that people were stealing Mother's Day, taking bits of her mother away from her, 
she became angry and fought and fought and fought. You see, there's a parallel universe in everything that goes on in life, and it is psychology. And I believe this woman was maybe too close to her mom, anxiously attached in some way, filled with abandonment anxiety, wanted to keep her memory alive. And when she felt that people were taking pieces of her mother from her, her, she fought back using the legal system. Sadly, she was unable to turn her own attachment style into love for any children of her own. So there you go. There's your armchair analysis. Uh, Hey, when we come back, have you been criticized lately? I have, and it was by one of my bosses, and I was so nervous. I'm going to give you some tips for how to stay calm, manage your anxiety, and how to deal with criticism. Oh, I know, that prickly thing, criticism. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. You know what week it is. Every other week, I'm going to do this now. Why don't I do some of my drive-by makeshift dream analysis in the next segment? Let me talk about this other thing first. But if you have a dream you want to bring to me, something that you can tell in a very short period of time on the radio, and you want to call in, the number is 1-800-520-1534. That's 1-800-520-1KFI. Um, I'll announce the phone number at the end of this segment. And after the break, we will come back, and I'd like to hear your dreams. It's kind of interesting for me. It really is. I love dream therapy. Freud called it the royal road to the unconscious. Um, All right, but before that, can I talk a little bit about how uncomfortable it is to be criticized? And yet, part of just getting through life, even if it's in your romantic relationships, is learning how to be open to criticism. So I want to go through a few strategies. Uh, First of all, I got an email today, uh, no, not today, a couple days ago, uh, from one of my bosses basically telling me about a certain rule that I hadn't been aware of. So, you know, I could have gone, I didn't know, right, Um, that, that this boss thought that I had broken. So I, what I did is I stayed calm, and that's the first thing to do. And luckily with email, you can do that. Nobody's at your face. They're just writing. And I simply wrote back, um, thanks for this information. This is very helpful. So in other words, I didn't say, wait a minute, I didn't know, or nobody told me that, right? Immediately getting defensive. And then I let it go while I thought about it and how I should deal with it and rectify and correct things. And in the meantime, that particular boss did a little bit of research and then wrote me back and said, oh, Actually, I was wrong. That is not a rule. You're good. Carry on. So imagine, I could have got into a huge big fight over nothing. But I did have that moment. You know that pit in your stomach? The stomach I call the second brain, where you're like, "Mm, I messed up. Oh, I'm busted. Oh, my God. But, you know, because I basically like myself, and I'm of a certain age that I've been through this enough times in my life, I didn't spiral down into life is awful. But some of us, have a difficult time experiencing criticism. And especially if that criticism is coming from somebody who we really respect. So here are a few tips to help you the next time you experience some criticism. Um, As I did, the first thing you want to do is stay calm and manage your anxiety. Listen to your inner dialogue. What are you telling yourself? 
are you actually starting to think like, oh, I'm a horrible person, right? Are you uh, thinking it's a giant catastrophe and all is lost here? Get rid of those feelings. Push your emotions away. Move into your prefrontal cortex, the front part of your brain, where you have executive function and you're a little more logical. And ask yourself, how can you solve this problem? How can you solve this problem? So while you're managing your anxiety and you're staying calm, the next thing I want you to do is consider the source and where and why it comes. Is this person in your life generally positive? Or is this somebody who's just always critical of others and always complains and always blames others? Well, then you got to discount what they're saying. But if there's somebody who's, you know, pretty close to you and usually positive, maybe, just maybe, this criticism is designed to be helpful to you. And so you've got to trust. But first, you got to suss out the source. And really think about it. Is this somebody who's always like finger pointing, always angry, always narcissistic? The next thing I always recommend, especially if you have done a little body scan when you got the criticism, and if you're lucky enough that it was by email and text and you don't have to respond like instantaneously with someone standing in front of you saying something, that you can actually buy a little time and think about how you're going to react I always believe that it's not a bad thing to tell the criticizer right away that they might be partially right. You could say something like, huh, I think you might have a point there. Let me think about this a bit. It's okay to buy time. Say you need to think about it. But it keeps them from reinforcing what they're saying if you're already giving them a little bit of, you know what, maybe you're right about this. Or this is new information to me interesting. Let me think about it. All right. They can't come at you with, well, blah, blah, blah. I told you so. Right. The most important thing is don't be defensive and don't be a victim. When you get into conflict with people, nobody can argue with a victim. If you get into a competition of like whose life is worse, everybody loses. And know this, we're all human. Don't be too hard on yourself. Understand that things are going to be okay. All right, if you've got a dream, give me a call. 1-800-520-1534. 1-800-520-1534. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. You ready for some drive-by makeshift? dream analysis. I love dreams. If you've got a dream you want to share with me and get my take on it, call 1-800-520-1KFI. That's 1-800-520-1534. Now, I want to remind everybody that uh, I'm not in clinical practice. I'm a professor. But when I was, I loved to do dream analysis. Freud, Sigmund Freud, the father of all psychology, called our dreams the royal road to the unconscious. He called it pre-conscious material. In other words, our unconscious was just sort of gently testing to see whether we could actually take the truth bit by bit by bit. And when I was in private practice and did dream analysis, I would chart, I'd ask, you know, patients to write down their dreams, and I would chart week to week 
various themes that were coming up and connect the dots for them that their conscious was getting ready to see. There, um, I just think that there's no more valuable personal growth work for all of us than to pay attention to our dreams. And of course, it is hard to remember our dreams. And so I want to remind you that if you're not somebody who remembers your dreams, the way to do it is uh, there's some things that suppress dreams. Alcohol is one. Antidepressants are another. Um, also, if you have to wake up early and you're overtired and jump out of bed, there's no time to stay in that in-between of awake and sleep for you to remember your dream. So um, it's a good idea to get to bed earlier, get a good night's sleep without alcohol. And when you do wake up, try to stay in that in-between stage and grab on to fragments of the dream. Write down some keywords before you get up to go to the bathroom. Have a pen and paper right beside the bed and write down some keywords. And that will help you remember the dream. There's also some new studies out there showing that study participants who took B6 before they went to bed um, and had better recall of their dreams. So if you've got a dream you'd like to share with me, call one 800 520 We've got Kayla. Hi, Kayla. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi, Dr. Wendy. Boy, have I got a dream for you. Oh, I can't I just, wait to hear. I just had it last night, and I, I talked to my girlfriend this morning what does this mean? <laughs> strange. They can be strange. Okay, give me, tell me about it. Okay. So I was the girlfriend of Vice President Pence. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we were together with uh, President Trump, and our limos were waiting for us. Mm-hmm. We were going somewhere. I don't know where we were going. And uh, I was looking for a coat to wear, and I was having a tough time looking for that coat. Mm. And I ended up, everyone was, you know, really kind of impatient, and I was, you know, dragging behind. And I finally grabbed a a coat with a fur collar that was actually something I used to have many years ago, I remember. Mm -hmm. And um, then I I put the coat on, and I went up to Donald Trump, and I tickled him. (laughs) And you tickled him. I tickled him, yeah. And uh, he wasn't too happy, though. He wasn't smiling or laughing. Oh, he didn't like to be tickled by you. I guess not. With the fur collar. Okay, anything else about this dream before we get into it? That's all I can remember. All right. So first of all, in your waking life, what uh, comes up when you think of Vice President Mike Pence? I don't really think of Vice President. <laughs> I really don't. Um, you don't have any emotional reaction, positive, negative, any, anything that he's done that you like, don't like, anything that brings an emotion to you? Emotion? No, no. I just recall last week in the news what um, John McCain had said about him. He could come to the funeral, but Donald Trump couldn't. So that's the only okay. Thing so John I... McCain had said that that Vice President uh, Pence could come to the funeral, but not Donald Trump. Right. Okay. And um, so that's sort of top of mind at this moment. And I don't know. I didn't know. It talk, was. <laughs> let's talk about that old coat. Do you want to tell me what you remember about that coat and where it showed up in your life? Oh, gosh, I had that, oh, when I lived in Chicago, mm-hmm. and I was in my 20s. I'm about your age now. Um, and uh, it was glamorous. Mm-hmm. Mm, as a matter of fact, I was in a pageant. I wore it. I remember being in a pageant. Mm-hmm. So you have positive fe- feelings. Yes, yes. Okay, and let's talk about President Trump. What um, comes to mind when you think of him? Oh, 
fear. Fear. Tell me <laughs> more. Say more about that. Oh, I don't know. Just everything that's going on right now. I'm not really much of a political person, so I'm surprised that I would even, it would even come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So here's what I'm getting from this. Mm-hmm. So there is this coat. When you found you were looking everywhere in the dream for your coat, right? Right. And I think what you were looking for is the feelings you had in Chicago in your twenties, right? It was like I want to go back to that. It was a glamorous time, and here you are as the date of Vice President Mike Pence, and now you've heard that you're get, going to get to go to, a, or he's going to get to go to a funeral, but you're like, but wait, that's about loss. Right. It's McCain's death that we're talking about here. Right. And so even though you fear Donald Trump in your dream, you were trying to tickle him to try to make him more happy. And so I think your dream has a lot to do with not necessarily the political environment in this country, but your own personal growth, sort of wanting to have some feelings of the past back. Uh-huh. worrying a little bit about death, as we all do. And as we get older, it becomes a very, you know, important concern, right? Uh-huh. And wondering if we'll be invited to death or not. And then, you know, living with this fear, this fear, which is, you know, exemplified by Donald Trump. But I think it's your fear about some changes and about aging and wanting more glamour back in your life. You see, the brain is so fabulous. It chooses metaphors and symbols that, oh. that are often hit you over the head symbols. But it's always about our own experience and our personal growth. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes Especially, a lot of sense. But, but it, it, it was a fun dream. I liked what your brain shows. It's a lot of fun. Very, very creative. Yeah, okay. But- Kayla. I mean, that is what I'm going through right now. I'm trying to determine where to move, and there's a lot of changes and things like that. So. Yeah, and here you are getting in limos, right? It's about movement and change. Mm. Uh, Kayla, I want to remind you that this is not therapy, and if you have any feelings by anything I say that makes you feel uncomfortable, please go see a licensed psychotherapist. Um, we are doing this for entertainment purposes. <laughs> but yeah, thank, I know. Thank you for being such a good sport, and thank you for calling. All right, bye. Thanks. Hi, Linda. Linda from Long Beach. It's Dr. Wendy. Uh, Hi, Dr. Wendy. Hi, how are you? We only have a little time left in this segment, but I'm going to ask you to hang on through the break. So why don't you start your dream for me? Okay. I'm a happily married straight woman. I'm raised to a man, but I constantly have dreams of having sex with women. Ah. I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Anything else about these dreams or these particular women? Really oh, Lord. <laughs> okay. Uh, so they tend to be our media's perception of beautiful women. Okay, Linda, I have some thoughts for you. Hang on. We're going to go to break. And when we come back, got a couple more people on the line. Hang on there for our drive-by makeshift dream analysis. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Please follow me online. The handle everywhere is Dr. Wendy Walsh, just Dr. Wendy Walsh. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, Insta, whatever. All right, we have Linda on the line, Linda from Long Beach, who says she's a happily married heterosexual woman, woman, but she keeps having dreams of having sex with beautiful women. Linda, you still with us? I am. Okay, I got a couple theories for you here. One is okay. remember that every piece of the dream is usually a piece of us. 
So I'm wondering about you, your beauty, you uh, growing in self-confidence, you loving yourself more. Um, I'm thinking these dreams mostly feel positive to you, do they? They do. Yes. So there could be, there could be a very positive, you lucky girl. Uh, And so, but the other piece that I want everyone to understand is that human beings um, are mostly bisexual. We have extremes of people who are 100% heterosexual or 100% homosexual. And when I say bisexual, I mean not, not just in behavior, but sometimes in fantasy. So there could be people that in their waking life live a completely heterosexual life, but their fantasy life could be a little more, uh, have a little more variety to it, shall we say. So that could be just your unconscious expressing a more bisexual part of yourself, but that doesn't mean you're gay. It doesn't mean that you have to turn it into behavior. It's obviously just something that you enjoy in your dream life. And so, Linda, I say there's not a problem with this. And I would also analyze what's going on in your day life when you do have these dreams, because it sounds like it's a very positive kind of you loving yourself kind of dream. Thanks so much for calling. All right, let us go to Aaron from Florida. Aaron, I'm really interested to hear about your dream. It's Dr. Wendy. Hello, how are you doing this evening? Good. Tell me about your dream. Well, you see, I keep having this dream I'm in water, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get to the top. Mm-hmm. I see the light, and it's like I'm in a big pool, but I can't get to get out of the water. I just, I see the light. I just can't get to it. And what is the feeling that you associate most with this dream? It's almost like a, it's a rust feeling, like I'm trying to get there. I can feel myself trying to get there. I've actually woken myself up from it. Mm-hmm. So it's just a feeling, of, did you say rush, like hurrying? Yes. Okay. It's not terror, like you're dying. It's more like no, you've got to get there. Yeah, it's more of like a anxiety, like an anxiety feeling. Just I'm trying to get there, and I just get, like when you're driving down a long road and you see where you know you got to go fur, far, and you just look down the road and you can like I got to get to that point, but you just can't get there. Oh, I'm hearing so much in this dream. All right, let me say this, is that in general, I don't think that, you know, if somebody dreams about a llama, it means this to all people, or if somebody dreams about a table, it means that. However, it is very common, and this is very Jungian. Uh, uh, Jung was one of Freud's disciples who broke off, and he did a lot of dream work, too. And he also believed that the water often represented the unconscious, And coming to the surface is about becoming more conscious, more aware. And I would say this dream is such a perfect example. And when you also added to it about the long road and that place you want to get to, this dream to me speaks of personal growth and you growing emotionally, you growing as a person, you learning more about yourself. And so I think this is a great dream that's sort of giving you like letting you know that there's good stuff coming because you don't have terror associated with it. Aaron, thank you so much for calling. I want to see if we have time to squeeze in one more real fast. Do we, Josh? Oh, we do. Let's go to uh, Lynn in Oxnard. Hi, Lynn. It's Dr. Wendy. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have this, I've had a dream when my, uh, my grandpa died mm-hmm. uh, that I, I got to see him again, and I was so excited. I was like, we're really here. I can't believe it. And then he starts, his skin starts to fall off, and mm-hmm. he starts to just, just, it's really disgusting. And mm-hmm. then when my dad passed away, I had that exact same dream. Mm-hmm. And I, it's rare that I ever have a good dream, but I'm, I'm afraid to 
have that dream again, but I am also really excited to have it because I do have that first part where I get to see him again, but then the skin falls off and his whole body starts deteriorating right there. Um, say more about your relationship with your grandfather and your father. Uh, very close with both of them. Mm. My grandpa was like my uh, main man in my life until my stepdad came along, and, and he was also very supportive. And these are the two men that you dream about? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Those, in, those dreams in particular, yes. So this dream to me is literally what we experience when we experience loss and also experience the love that we had from these relationships. So it's very interesting that you followed up the description of the dream with this idea about mm, partly afraid to go back to sleep because you're afraid of this dream, but at the same time wanting it because there's this good piece where they come back. And yeah. this is what life is. You know, when we lose people that we care about so much, we keep parts of them inside us that we want them to come back. We want to grow. But the more we think about them, we also are faced with the fact that, I'm sorry to tell you, quite literally, their skin falls off. I mean, whether they're cremated or under the ground, right? So it also (laughs) becomes a metaphor for our own fear of death. And, And what's interesting to me is the intergenerational piece of this, Lynn, is that first you have the grandfather and then the dad, and then who's next? You afraid to go to sleep, right? So no matter how, I just want to tell everybody, no matter how old you are when your parents die, you realize you're next. I mean, that's just the deal, right? And so it's how we work through these feelings in our dream life. And so I want to give you a little tiny bit of advice is that the next time you're going to sleep, I would like you to ask them to come into the dream, literally, and say, I want you to stay intact inside me. I don't want you to fall apart inside me. I want to keep you alive and well inside me because their wisdom will then have more power to work through you. And I've, I've never done that, and that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we can actually prompt certain kinds of dreams. One of the other things I, I like to do is, let's say I'm waking up in a dream that's not really a great dream. Sometimes I do what's called lucid dreaming, where I finish it off in a better way. I literally like go, okay, I'm going to redo the ending of that. And I stay half awake, half asleep and do some lucid dreaming, which can be very helpful too. But I, I actually love this dream because it is you wrestling with both loss and fear of dying, but wanting to keep pieces of them with you. Lynn, thank you so much for calling. And thank you, everybody. I'm sorry for all the others waiting that I can't get to your dream today. I want to remind everybody that this is drive-through makeshift dream therapy and should not be a substitution for real dream therapy if you'd like to get that this is entertainment and if i did say anything that made you have a feeling that was real uncomfortable then please call a licensed therapist for help all right when we come back uh can we talk about sex workers and is it time to decriminalize prostitution i've got a guest who thinks so you're listening to the dr wendy walsh show on kfi am 640 KFI AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. Thank you. Back for hour two of the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. You know, I specialize in relationships, and that may mean how we attach to anybody across the lifespan, but it also involves sexuality. And we have the widest range of sexual behavior, Homo sapiens do, of any primate species, right? And uh, I'm always interested 
in how our culture puts pressure on humans to behave in certain ways sexually. Later in the show, we're going to be talking about the royal wedding and that, you know, forcing people into a monogamous long-term relationship. Some, some people out there might think that's not cool. Other people might absolutely applaud that. So anyway, my eyes were kind of open this week when I saw this headline. I'm not joking. I'm reading a real headline. New law. Kansas cops can't have sex during traffic stops. Wait, what? Seriously, I read that headline. So I'm reading it. It says this new law bans sexual relations during the course of a traffic stop, a custodial interrogation, an interview in connection with an investigation, or while the law enforcement officer has such person detained. Okay, so I know you're thinking exactly what I thought. Isn't this illegal already? Nope. Kansas is one of 33 states where consensual sex between police and people in their custody wasn't a crime. Now, consensual sex between a cop and somebody in their custody? What's the word that's weird there? Consensual. Can you give consent if you're in police custody? It's like saying, you know, with when we talk about the Me Too movement and sexual harassment, can someone really give consent if somebody holds their paycheck over them? What if they're holding a prison cell over them or not? Interesting. So I started doing a little research, and I learned there's actually here in California, bringing the story home, there's an online petition where we are trying to get uh, state legislators to propose a bill to decriminalize prostitution. Um, And apparently one of the reasons why it hasn't happened earlier is because police officers benefit somehow when prostitution is legal. It's a lot to explain, so let me bring in my guest. Her name is Maxine Dugan. She's the president of the Erotic Service Providers Legal Education and Research Project. Hi, Maxine. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm always happy to discuss this. So let's, first of all, talk about what you guys are trying to do with this online petition. Well, we're trying to get legislators in California to uh, propose a bill that would repeal the criminalization of the prostitution law in California, known as uh, Penal Code 647B. And we think it's, in, you know, it's just very imperative that they take this action now because a couple of things. One is that there was a uh, federal. Uh, appeals court decision in our case where we sued the state of California to invalidate this bad law. And the judge said, well, you got to get the legislators to do it. So we're petitioning the legislators to do it via this petition so people can go online. And when they sign it, it'll let your legislator know that you support decriminalization of prostitution. And the other thing, let's talk about the argument here a little bit. So, Mm -hmm. what is your reason that you want to decriminalize prostitution? Well, I work as a prostitute, and I don't like being criminalized. It's a very terrible situation. Um, I don't have the right to negotiate for my own labor and my own safe work conditions like everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, My clients don't have the right uh, to negotiate, you know, properly for what they want. So when you're setting up a situation to have an encounter, our conduct is not protected under, you know, the equal protection laws. You know, um, so if something were to happen. Okay, so you want a a free and safe workplace to get your work done. Um, Right. And And, you want to not have customers. Yeah, and I want my customers to have their ability to say what they want, too, so we can have a good experience. Because when we're talking about consent, we need to have the right to negotiate, right? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What about the moral argument? People who who say, 
well, prostitution is somehow immoral, so we have to make it illegal. What do you say to those people? Well, this is the United States of America, and we don't criminalize something just because we don't like it or, you know, it offends us in some sort of way. Um, You know, that's not the kind of America, that's not the way America is set up. You know, we have a constitution that gives people the right to exercise their uh, religion, um, their liberties, and we want the right to exercise our sexual liberty. We want our sexual conduct to be considered private adult consensual activity, and Mm -hmm. therefore it should be protected. So what about the argument that I have actually heard from law enforcement before, saying that where there is prostitution, there are other crimes And by cutting down on prostitution, you're eliminating about a bunch of other crimes. Do you agree with that? Well, I haven't seen the research that supports that at all. You know, because prostitution is criminalized, it puts many of us in, you know, situations that we might not otherwise, you know, be able to to choose to work in because our occupation is criminalized. Mm -hmm. Our workspaces are criminalized. All of our... uh, personal, intimate, domestic, and economic relationships are all criminalized under those pimping and pandering laws, for example. So if our if our work were not criminalized, these other activities should not be criminalized either. And so there's been many international bodies who have done the research, and they've said, yes, clearly this occupation should not be criminalized. So, so in, in some parts for. of Canada, I happen to know that they changed mm-hmm. the law for sex workers, that when a sex worker is in danger, she mm-hmm. or he is able to call police for help and not be arrested. Is this right. also what you're hoping? I mean, mm-hmm. it, I think a lot so, of sex workers are put in very dangerous situations. And well, how do they call the for help? It's because of the criminalization of our occupation. Now in Canada, they litigated a case similar to our case, but they won. And so they had three of their major anti-prostitution laws struck down in their high court as unconstitutional. So Canada recriminalized the customers. So that mm-hmm. essentially recriminalizes the workers. So if you're in a situation where you're, you're legal, but your customer isn't, but somebody robs him as he's coming out of, you know, your workspace, he doesn't have the right to report that. Well, if that person gets away with robbing him, what's going to happen to you next? Mm-hmm. You know, how are you going to be well, a victim I, of a witness? I understand your argument, you, if, but as yeah. this, these laws, you know, what we're seeing is massive social change happening at a very fast pace. Um, I think that, you know, charging the customer or making the customer which, let's be honest, is mostly male, and the workers are mostly female, but charging the customer and criminalizing that is one one positive step to at least help protect women, and they can call for help if, if they're being beaten or what have you. Now, I do want well, to tell you, Maxine. Dr. Wendy, Dr., Dr. Wendy, you know, we have, to, us who are prostitutes have to be at the center of any policy or law so I would respectfully disagree and say that that's not what the prostitute nation wants. We don't want our customers criminalized. Of, of course. In the long run, that's what you're hoping to clear up. I do want to say, though, as a feminist, that I've always felt that sex workers should be licensed. They should get regular health checkups. They should be protected. 
And I always like, you know, as a young woman with not very muscle tissue, much muscle tissue on my body, I used to say, how come guys can make these lucrative jobs in construction, say? Because just because their body is different, they can carry more weight. And I'd say, well, my body's different and it has a particular skill. Why shouldn't I be able to make more money from that? Um, So I've always, as a feminist, felt like, why is this illegal? And I do know also, Maxine, there's an argument and fear of some people about worried and trying to protect children. What do you say to that? Well, there's already laws that make it criminal to abuse children, a whole slew of laws, right? There's already laws against rape, robbery, theft, extortion, coercion, kidnapping, murder. I mean, there's already... We now know that child... Child prostitution is not child prostitution. It is rape of a child. We understand that, right? If they're under 18. Um, and there's already laws that are against that. Right. So when, when we come, know. Can you stay with me for another segment? Because I want to talk about the police angle as well. Um, okay. okay. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, we've got more from Maxine. You're listening to Dr. Wendy Walsh on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel has the news. <laughs> You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We're talking about a prickly subject. Should we decriminalize prostitution here in the state of California? We're seeing so much social change. Uh, With me, my guest, Maxine Dugan, who is president of the Erotic Service Providers Legal Education and Research Project. Maxine, when we were talking before the show, you Mm -hmm. said something that really struck a chord with me. You said that law enforcement does not want to see prostitution discriminalized. And actually, I'd said, don't they like shrug their shoulders at this point? Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I got to give you a ticket for this. And you said, no, they want to keep it alive and well. Thus, the Kansas, the new law in Kansas, finally saying cops can't have sex during traffic stops. Um, and to explain to me and our listeners why you, want, you believe law enforcement wants to keep prostitution criminalized. Well, they profit off the criminalization of our labor, obviously, when they get paid to do those prostitution sting operations under the guise of rescuing us as sex trafficking victims. And then the other thing is that they get to have sex with us uh, while we're in those prostitution sting operations. Like they get to have sexual contact. They can touch our breasts. They can have, you know, sex with us. We might perform oral sex on them. And then they'll arrest us for prostitution. And they'll turn around and do a press release to the public and say, oh, we rescued sex trafficking victims. So, you know, we think that that is a huge public safety issue. Um, because See, when legal. I hear it's- the word sex trafficking victims, I always assume it's minors. Not adults. Do they refer to adults as sex trafficking victims? Yeah. I mean, they basically say anything they want in those press releases. And our position is that they shouldn't be having sex with us under when they're doing investigations for prostitution or for sex trafficking. What if I was a sex trafficking victim? As they're adult? re-victimizing, and yeah. Yeah, and here I am having sex with a cop, and, you know, and then he arrests me for prostitution. So wait, I have a question. They, in order to collect evidence that you're actually selling sex, they have to engage in sex with a prostitute? It's legal. It's legal here in California, and it shouldn't be. And that behavior has caused 
um, so many officers to be relieved of duty and a bunch of internal investigations and a bunch of monies being paid out to people, you know, to actual victims. You know, here in the Bay Area, we had the Celeste Swap case where she was an underage um, sex worker, and there were 13 different law enforcement agencies involved in having sex with her. And now there's civil mm. litigation, they're mm. having to pay out. Yeah, so it's causing a bunch of problems, and it causes credibility on those police agencies and on those individual officers when they're trying to litigate really important cases. What if it was found out that, you know, the Golden Gate Killer case that they just finally cracked in Sacramento, that the officers involved in that case, in that investigation, were also involved in prostitution sting operations, and they were discredited from any evidence in the, in the you know, serial killer case? You know, these are the ways that the public is unaware and needs to become aware that these anti-prostitution laws are anti-public safety and they need to go. I would love to hear from law enforcement. Uh, Tweet me, Facebook me, because I'm really just learning about this. Um, I'm wondering if they're working vice, whether it's sort of maybe not a, a written requirement of their job description, but that there's kind of social coercion among the ranks to engage in sex with sex workers. Do you believe that? That that is yeah, so? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, they, they're having free sex with us, and then they get to turn around to the public and say they rescued us as, you know, sex trafficking victims. So, that's you know, that's great. some serious... I got to say, I mean, yeah. I feel like I need more information, but on the surface, that sure sounds crazy. Well, you know, we have been providing legislators with this information for years, and they just ignored us. That's why we took our case to the federal court and asked the federal court for relief from this bad law. And, you know, they said they, you know, tossed the, you know, kicked the can down the road, and now it's back to the California state legislators to make this decision and to provide the public with safety and us too. And, you know, I think what's going to happen is at some point some police officer – male or female, is going to go public and say, it was expected of my job description, my duties, and hashtag me too, right? And I think that we're going to see it come, maybe change will happen from the other end. Because I don't think, I mean, Maxine, I know you have opinions about police officers and them getting free sex from sex workers, but, you know, There are lots of great police officers out there. The vast majority are. And I don't think they like this system either. It doesn't sound great to me. No, and I think they've just got that, you know, blue shield or whatever they call that where it keeps officers from being able to come forward and, you know, tell the truth about what's really going on. But they really need to. Maxine Dugan, thank you so much for being with me. She's president of the Erotic Service Providers Legal Education and Research Project. If you would like to sign the petition to decriminalize sex workers in California, I posted the petition on my Twitter and on my Facebook. Thanks for being with us, Maxine. You're listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. By AM 640, you have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. I want to put a little social context into the conversation I just had the last couple segments. Um, it can be, you know, jarring when you have ideas that prostitution is a sin or it's immoral. 
But I want to remind everybody that controlling women's reproduction and thus their sexuality has been a goal of many, many generations of many men as our human species has evolved. And on the flip side of it, women use their access to their sexuality as a survival mechanism. You know, I have a talk that I give called the High Supply Sexual Economy. And I talk about how the price of sex moves up and down based on its supply, right? Its availability. When something we know rises in supply, the price tends to go down. When something is in low supply, then the price goes way up. So um, let's talk about sexuality. We are now at a time in our evolution where we are seeing a rise, a huge economic rise in women. For every man that graduates college, there are two women. Women make up the majority of the workforce in America. I know, we don't have enough women in boardrooms yet. We're getting there. Um, And so what happens when women rise in economic ability, an ability to procure resources to support themselves and their family, they tend to put sex out into the culture in high supply because they can simply enjoy the fruits of their body, and enjoy sex, right? We do know by looking at history and by looking at other cultures around the world where women continue to be disadvantaged, that when women are unable to fairly extract resources from the environment, earn enough money independently, then they find a way to monetize their vagina, all right? So they either charge the highest price possible, which is you better sign on the dotted line, Marry me in a lifelong contract called marriage. Support any offspring that come from this marriage, or else there's no way you can get it. Or they do the opposite, and they rent it by the hour. So you look at times in history where women have been particularly oppressed. Let's go, for example, with Victorian England. And you will find out that there was one prostitute for every 12 men in Victorian England. Because it was so hard for them to have sex with their peer women who weren't about to give it up until they married them. So when women are disadvantaged, you tend to see marriage rates go up. You tend to see that virginity becomes coveted. You will find more children are born into wedlock. And you will also see that prostitution goes way up. It's fascinating that right now we're at a time in our evolution where, um, you know, sex is in high supply, The price is fairly cheap. I'm always amazed that sex workers are able to find any clients. I mean, they're competing with pornography. They're competing with um, hookups, women who will give it up for, you know, the cost of a well-worded text. I mean, we're at the barrel. You know, in 1950, when someone got married or when someone, two people met each other, the price of sex was pretty much six months of courtship. That's actually the average amount of time from meeting until altar. Six months in 1950. Today, the price of sex, well, in the 80s, you might remember the price of sex was the three-date rule. Remember the three-date rule? And today, the price of sex has dropped to the barrel-bottom price of one well-worded text. I often say guys shouldn't be studying business in school. They should be taking writing classes. Um, And so now we're at a stage where sex is available, it's everywhere, whether it's virtual sex online, whether it's meeting somebody on an app and hooking up very quickly, and I'm always amazed that prostitutes are still working. I do. I was in Las Vegas one time 
I know. Every a story about prostitution always begins with, I was in Las Vegas one time, uh, but I was actually there on a shoot. And for some reason, it was a CNN shoot. But I was in the green room talking with my driver, the car service that brought me to the studio. And he was saying that, you know, drivers see a lot of how the sex trade works, of course. They're driving uh, customers to people. They're driving um, prostitutes to their workplace, etc. And I said, why, why do guys pay for sex? Sex is so easy to obtain. Why do you think? And he said the thing that I bet so many men know, but not many women know. He said, because men just want, those men that are customers, just want absolute no-strings-attached sex. So what they're paying for is they're paying for the ability to never hear the words, um, where, where are we going? What is this between us, right? What is this relationship? And so um, there are some men out there, and I'm going to be politically incorrect because right now we're in this gender-neutral world that it seems to be not okay to talk about differences in the sexes. But, you know, men tend to want sex a little bit more than women, maybe a lot more than women. I mean, sperm chases egg, not the reverse, right? So um, if... If there are men wanting more sex and women are there not wanting as much sex, tired with kids working, whatever. I mean, okay, now I'm getting into another place, which is I'm not a believer in infidelity. Uh, I don't think betrayal is good. I don't think dishonesty is good in our intimate relationships. However, a single man who wants to have completely no strings attached sex and isn't able to explain that on Tinder, I guess, Uh, can use a prostitute. At the other end of my thinking about this conversation about whether we should decriminalize prostitution is my worry for women. As I know there are many, many sex workers who are male, but right now I I just want to talk about women. Um, I worry about the vulnerable position that sex workers are put in, and many of them are mothers. And if they cannot call the police when they are being attacked by a customer... When the law is being broken and their body is being violated in a criminal way, if they cannot call police for help and protection, then we have a problem in our society. Now, of course, as a mother, as a human, I don't think prostitution should ever involve rape of a child. There is no such thing as a child prostitute. There is only rape of a child. If a woman is under the age of 18. We've decided in our culture that that's the magic number. Personally, I'd like to move the drinking age lower and the sex age (laughs) or the prostitution age a little higher. Um, I don't know. I think it should be 21 because our prefrontal cortex takes so long to become fully formed and the decision-making process. Um, You know, I don't think you should be able to do much except any decision except maybe order from a menu till you're like 25. (laughs) I mean, these are big decisions that people are making very early in life. Um, But having said that, obviously, I don't think that children should be involved as sex workers at all because that's rape. But if we're talking about adult women and adult men who want to make money from their body, I'm just like, you know what? Fine. Whatever. Let's tax it. Let's uh, regulate it. Let's make sure they get the health checkups. Let's keep it safe for everybody. That's my opinion of it. And But there are others who are all about marriage. 
And if you're all about marriage, you're going to be excited about my next segment because we are now into the six-day countdown to the Royal Wedding Watch. And I've got some news for you about that one. This is the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Larry Perel's got the news. Oh, help me, please, doctor. I'm damaged. KFI AM 640. You have Dr. Wendy Walsh with you. We are coming into the home stretch. My producer Joey's here with me. Joey, it never seems long enough. Two hours. Not. I could. I feel like I just get on a roll. Yeah. And it's time to start to wrap up again. Yeah. But you know I'm excited, right? Why? Why is that? What because we're six days away. Oh my gosh! From the so, royal so wedding. Talk about coming quickly, huh? I know. <laughs> People often ask me, "So, are you not pro-marriage, Doctor Wendy? Do you not care about marriage?" Well, you know, I look at everything through a sociological lens, and right now, until we have better social programs for single parents, fathers, and mothers, marriage statistically is still the best deal we have for children. And I teach this in my developmental psychology class. One of the questions on the exam, are you listening students, the exam's up this week, uh, is um, something like, under what circumstances is it better for unhappy parents to stay together, quote unquote, for the sake of the children? And the answer is when economically maintaining two households would push these kids into poverty, thereby uh, removing, you know, all, all the the benefits of having two parents both investing in those kids. In other words, kids survive fairly well with just some bickering parents around. Now, toxic relationships are a little bit different, right? Um, if a relationship has uh, domestic violence, severe emotional abuse, uh, child abuse, um, a substance abuse disorder, or um, chronic, chronic cheating – I would call that a toxic nest for children. But on the other hand, two people are kind of like bored with each other or bickering or what have you. Kids don't notice as long as parents are still investing in the kids, investing the most expensive thing they have, their time, and also, of course, their resources. So I'm not down on marriage by any means. I just think that as human beings, we have a wide range of sexual and mating behavior and you will see different things for different people. I mean, anthropologists have always scratched their heads trying to figure out why it is that a good 50% of humans mate for life. So half of them, us, them, some of us. <laughs> I don't know. I look back on my history and I'm like, wait a sec. I tried really hard. I had the big white Catholic wedding. What happened there? Um, I guess I'm a, a serial monogamist like Monique Marvez. She told me that's how she identifies herself. I call myself a serial pair bonder. Anyway, so, um, but I do love weddings. I love weddings because the ceremony, the pomp and pageantry, I love them because of the profession of love in a very public way always touches me. Who doesn't cry at a wedding? I cry at every wedding I go to. So if you're getting married, please invite me because I love to, you know what tears are, right? You're releasing a little stress hormone. It's good for you. So uh, I wear the waterproof mascara. I will go. I will bring the tissue and sit there. And cry. So I am setting my alarm for this Saturday at 4 a.m. Pacific. I should probably get up a little before 4 a.m., right, Joey? So I can be ready, have my latte in hand. Saturday, May 19th, uh, this, the marriage of, listen to these names, Rachel Megan Markle, also known as Megan Markle, an American actress best known for playing Rachel Zane in the long-running legal intrigue drama Suits, is marrying 
Prince Henry Charles Albert David of Wales, also known as Prince Harry. And it's of interest to us here in Los Angeles because the bride is from L.A. And she is biracial. This is interesting to me because I have biracial daughters. And this is the first time we will see a black woman in the royal family. There's actually a Twitter hashtag, hashtag black princess. But it's kind of inaccurate because it's actually she's going to be a duchess. And he is so far away from the throne because his brother has to be beheaded first and every one of his brother's kids. Yeah. Do you know about how many people are in line? before? Uh, he's number six, six I think. Okay. Yeah. So it's a, he's a ways away. Uh, we probably won't get to see a black queen from L.A. Could you imagine? I, really? I just. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like score. Hey, I know. Job. It'd be great. OK, so we have some news uh, last the last week before the wedding. Finally, the Queen officially consents to Harry and Meghan's marriage. And in fact, a picture of the Queen's written consent allowing Prince Harry and Meghan Markle to marry has been released by Buckingham Palace. Uh, the first six people in the line, oh, the first six people in line to the throne must seek the Queen's approval to marry. So he had to, and he did. Let's hear about rules. Are you going to the wedding? Uh, who did we have on last week? Oh, uh, Robert Kovacic from uh-huh. KNBC. He's there already. Yeah. And uh, he will be going to the wedding. So there's always going to be logistical difficulty. And there are a few rules about what's going to happen. Three miles away from the wedding, the six, the 1,200 guests, 600 invitations, bring a guest, 1,200 guests, will be put through security checks. They will be asked to show identification. Then they will be ushered onto buses to travel to Windsor Castle. So you can get, it's like going to Coachella or something. You can get like three miles away and then you got to go through a security check. Cameras will be banned along with bulky bags. Wow, it's like going to an American sports event. Um, before the private reception. So remember, if you've been following, 1,200 people get invited to the main gig. And then afterwards, there's a uh, private reception and there's going to be a party. There's rumors that Elton John is performing, but we don't know for sure. Can you look that up, Joey? Yeah. See who's supposed to perform at this dance party afterwards. Um, But before the party, all guests will be asked to surrender all mobile telephones and any devices used for image capture. Last wedding that happened with me, it was Gene Simmons and Shannon Tweed's wedding. I went, and they actually asked you to leave your cell phone. Of course, I'm a mom. My kids were young. I can't live without my cell phone. It's the lifeline. So I hid mine in my clothes and I opened my bag and said, oh, I didn't bring a cell phone. And they believed me. But, you know, I wasn't going to do anything nefarious. I wasn't going to take pictures or try to sell them or anything like that. Um, uh, And Prince Harry and Meghan Markle have asked for guests to not send gifts. I think they have enough stuff. And instead donate to the seven charities chosen to honor the big day. So if you'd like to, just in the name of honoring marriage... Go ahead, and you can go online and find out what the seven charities are. All right, so I'll be up. I hope you will be, too. Uh, It brings us to a close on the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show. I'm here every Wednesday in the 1 o'clock hour on the Gary and Shannon Show and every Sunday from 4 to 6. And, hey, I'll be tweeting away during the wedding, so be awake with me. Would you get up at 4 a.m. on Saturday? I'll be there with you. Thanks so much for being with me. It's always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Dr. Wendy Walsh Show on KFI AM 640. Mo Kelly is next.